0: chapter sixteen of half a century by jane gray swishelm this librivox recording is in the public domain recording by pamela Nagami. the waters grow deep age twenty nine the plans for my conversion seemed to be aided by our coming to the farm as i fitted up the prophet's chamber to entertain my husband's friends in his house there were two preachers in the circuit the eldest a plain blunt man began on his first visit to pelt me with problems about man-made ministers and calvinism i replied by citing the election of abraham jacob and the entire jewish nation and by quoting the eighth chapter of romans until he seemed to despair and came no more for they could not accept my hospitality while i refused their religion the other circuit rider was young handsome and zealous and was doing a great work in converting young girls on his first visit i thought him rude on his second he inquired at table is this the place where they put onions into everything i replied that we used none in tea or coffee when i joined him and my husband in the parlor he waved his hand round the room to point out its decorations and said brother james tells me that this is all your work it is quite wonderful And now, sister, what a pity it is that you will not turn your attention to religion. You seem to do everything so well. He motioned as if to lay his hand on my shoulder. I drew back and said, Excuse me, sir, but I am not your sister. And as for your religion, you remind me with it of Dr. Jane's and his hair tonic. How so, sister? Again, pardon, but I am not your sister. Dr. Jaynes uses a large part of his column to persuade us that it is good to have good hair. No one disputes that, and he should prove that his tonic will bring good hair. So you talk of the importance of religion. No one disputes this, and it is your business to prove that the nostrum you peddle is religion. I say it is not. It is a system of will-worship. Religion is obedience to God's law, you teach people that they can and do obey this law perfectly while they do not know it your church has no bibles in her pews few in her families and these unread preachers and all no one in twenty can repeat the ten commandments you are blind leaders of the blind and must all fall into the ditch destroyed by lack of knowledge that week he proposed to abandon the swissvale meeting-house and build one in wilkinsburg giving as a reason the impossibility of keeping up a congregation with me on the farm next conference sent reverend henderson as presiding elder who brought in a new era he slept in the prophet's chamber admired my pretty rooms and said nothing about my getting religion the circuit preacher was of the same mind an earnest modest young man wrestling with english grammar who on his first visit sought my help about adverbs, while my mother-in-law looked on in evident displeasure. To her, this was the dawn of that new day in which the Methodist church rivals all others in her institutions of learning. The good time of inspiration was slipping away. What wonder that she clutched it as Jacob did his angel! There in that house she had for long years been an oracle to inspired men and now to see God's spirit displaced by Kirkham's grammar was rank infidelity. The Wilkinsburg meeting-house was being built, and that one which had been to her, all that the temple ever was to Solomon, would be left to the owls and bats, her Zion desolate. Those walls made sacred by visions of glory and shouts of triumph would crumble to ruin in the clinging silence. How could she but think, that the influence was evil which could bring such result. The new building was consecrated with much ceremony. The two Hendersons stayed with us, and on Sabbath morning consulted me as to the best way of taking up subscriptions. Mother-in-law looked on till she could bear it no longer, and said, Brother Henderson, if you mean to be in time for love-feast, you must not stay fooling here. Both men sprang to their feet, hurried away and never returned general conference at its session in baltimore in eighteen forty passed the black gag law which forbade coloured members of the church to give testimony in church trials against white members in any state where they were forbidden to testify in courts four members of the Pittsburgh conference voted for it and when my husband returned from the dedication I learned that three of them had figured prominently in the exercises, and he had refused to commune on account of their ministrations. Everything went smoothly for ten days when my husband came to our room where I sat writing, threw himself on the bed, and poured out such a torrent of accusations as I had not dreamed possible, and of which I refrained from giving any adequate description. I looked up and saw that he was livid with rage. His words appeared the ravings of a madman, yet there was method in them, and no crime in the calendar with which they did not charge me. Butter money was not accounted for, pickles and preserves missing, things about the house were going to destruction, the country was full of falsehoods, and I had told them all. It was all a blur of sound and fury, but in it stood out these words. You ruined Samuel, and now you are trying to ruin the boys and those two fool preachers. People know it too, and I am ashamed to show my face for the talk. When he seemed to be finished, I asked, How long since you learned my real character? This spurred him to new wrath, and he exclaimed, There now, that's the next of it. You will go and tell that I have abused you. It's not me. I never suspected your honesty, but my mother yes my poor old mother i would not care if you could only behave yourself before my mother i sat leaning my elbows on my table with my head in my hands and the words ruined samuel became a refrain i thought of the danger out of which i had plucked him while in louisville of the force with which i had grappled him with hooks of steel as he hung on the outer edge of that precipice of dissipation while I clung to the almighty arm for help. I thought of the tears and solemnity with which this man had given to me the dying message of that rescued brother. Earth seemed to be passing away and to leave no standing room. I was teaching school in the abandoned meeting-house. It was noon recess, and I must hurry or be late. I passed into the hall and out of the house with the thought, I cross his threshold now for the last time. But I must remain near and finish my school when I would be present to meet these monstrous charges before the world. My reveries did not interfere with my school duties, and when they were over, I sat in the old meeting-house or walked its one aisle with the quiet dead lying all around me, thinking of that good fight which I should fight ere I finished my course and lay down to rest as they did but the sun went down, the long twilight drew on the coming night, and I was homeless. Where should I go? I thought of the Birkhammers, whose little son lay among the dead beside me. I had tended him in his last illness and prepared his body for burial. They were German tenants of Judge Wilkins, and to reach their house I must pass through the dark valley over which now lay a new pall. There were lights in the house as I passed, and Tom rattled his chain and gave forth one of those shrieks which pierced the air for a mile. I was glad to know that he was not loose, and that it was only my phantom which crouched in every available place ready to spring. The bears bellowed a response to his shriek, but I did not hasten. The stream, so loud and angry on that night of my first entrance into this vale of tears, was now low and sang a lullaby of angelic music as I crossed it on stepping-stones. On the hillside it was almost as dark as that night when Father Oliver stopped and felt for the bank with his whip. The hammers asked no questions, and I went to sleep without giving any account of my strange visit, but about midnight I awoke myself and the whole family by my sobs. They gathered around my bed, and I must tell what i said i do not know but the old man interrupted me with oh tam jim you stay here mit us my old woman and me we as plenty we takes care of you nobody never say nothing bad about you everybody likes you cause you is pleasant mit everybody as he talked he drew his sleeve across his eyes while his wife and daughter comforted me i would board there and finish my school then go to Butler and take the seminary or a place in the common school. I saw no one as I passed my late home next morning. In school the first exercise was Bible, reading verse about with the pupils. The 25th chapter of Matthew came in order, and while reading its account of the final judgment, I saw as by a revelation why this trouble had been sent to me, and a great flood of light seemed thrown across my path before me. Christ's little ones were sick and in prison, and I had not visited them. Old Martha, standing before her judges, rose up to upbraid me. I was to have followed the lamb, and had been making butter to add to an estate larger now than the owner could use. No wonder she thought I stole the money. I, who had failed to rebuke man-stealing, might steal anything." That meeting-house which I had been helping to build by entertaining its builders and aiding them about subscriptions, it and they were a part of a great man-thieving machine. I had been false to every principle of justice, had been decorating parlors when I should have been tearing down prisons. I, helping black Gadgets build a church. When thou a thief didst see, thou joinst with him in sin. Thinking reaching out for the path to that bastille which i must attack i went on with my school duties until my husband walked in and asked why i had not been at home i was worn with intense strain and at the word home burst into a passion of tears i told the pupils to take their books and leave there would be no more school and i would hear them go around on tiptoe and whisper twice a pair of little arms were thrown around me and the sound of the retreating footsteps died away when my husband laid his hand all trembling on my head. I threw it off and begged him to go away. His presence would kill me. He would not go, and I went out into the woods. He followed and said he had never charged me with an evil thought, much less an action, was the most loving of husbands and the most injured, in that I had thought he had found fault with me. He might have spoken a hasty word, but was it right to lay it up against him? I still begged him to leave, that I should die if he did not. He went, and I crossed the fields to the house of Thomas Dixon, thinking that from it I could get to the city by the river-road and fly anywhere. Mrs. Dixon made me go to bed, as I was able to go nowhere else, and here my husband's brother-in-law found me. He had come as peacemaker, and could not think what it all meant. Some angry words of James about his mother, who would now go back to live with him. The Dixons joined him with entreaties. If my husband had injured me, he was very, very sorry, was quite overwhelmed with grief, for the pain he had cost me. Then they brought down the lever of scripture and conscience. If thy brother offend thee seventy times seven, and I yielded. My husband came, and I went home with him that evening, expecting that my mother-in-law was installed in her new home on the hill. But she met and kissed me at the door, and I did not care. Nothing could add to the shudder of going into the house, and she seemed so grieved and frightened that my heart was touched, and I was very sorry for her that we had ever met. End of chapter 16